Raj. This is Ashwin. And this is the Blood Cancer Talks podcast. So this is a podcast that is exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease. And our goal is to focus on the latest advances in the biology and clinical management. Uh, today, we are excited to talk about Castleman's disease. Uh, we have an expert, Dr. Aaron Goodman, who is an associate professor of medicine at the Department of Hematology Oncology at, at UCSD. So first, let's do some quick introductions. Uh, Dr. Goodman, can you tell us uh, where are you from and what your clinical and research focus is? Yeah, um, well, I'm originally from Chicago, uh, and uh, then I made my way gradually out out west uh, to San Diego. I was a fellow here, and uh, I still remember when I uh, uh, interviewed here, I was I made it a point to that I would never leave San Diego. So I, I never plan on leaving this wonderful city. So um, I, I do love it here. So yeah, I, I'm in the I'm actually in the division of blood and marrow transplantation uh, uh, at UCSD. I've been. Uh, on faculty now for this is my sixth year uh, um, and uh, our division's a little unique we do um, bone marrow transplants CAR T's but if they don't need a transplant we still take care of them so we're really a malignant hematology division and we treat all all of us in our division treat all uh, malignant hematologic conditions uh, from myeloma to acute myeloid leukemia and lymphomas uh, we attend uh, 12 weeks a year on the inpatient service uh, which I'm doing right now um, and we have a few half days of clinical week. And uh, as far as my research, I, you know, my my research interests are a um, few research interests. One is you know a clinical trial analysis and how we design studies. Uh, but the other is really in rare uh, hematologic malignancies or rare diseases in general. So uh, um, I see a lot of the patients with T cell lymphomas, uh, cutaneous lymphomas. I run a cutaneous lymphoma clinic uh, with a dermatology colleague. Uh, and uh, I have an interest in Castleman's disease, which we'll talk about on this podcast. Sounds good. And um, Aaron, as probably everybody knows, he's a master educator and very popular on Twitter as Papa Heem. So um, I will start with a case just to set a stage for discussion on Castleman's disease. This is a patient that I saw in the clinic a couple of years ago and in which um, Castleman's was different, definitely the differential. So this was an 85-year-old gentleman with a history of um, IgA lambda smoldering myeloma who was in my clinic. Uh, I was observing him, not treating him. Uh, so he was also, he developed- uh, you, you weren't firing up the rev, no? <laughs> no, no rep. <laughs> so he was on watchful waiting and uh, he developed this HHV8 positive Kaposi sarcoma all of a sudden with pigmented lesions in lower extremities. He was HIV negative, by the way. And then he, he saw a sarcoma clinic at, at Columbia where he got several lines of treatment for treatment uh, for, for uh, the Kaposi sarcoma. At some point during the treatment, he got a PET scan which showed multiple FDG avid lymph nodes and the SUVs were ranging from four to six, so were not too high. And uh, there was a Obviously, there was a concern for metastatic Kaposi sarcoma. So there was a biopsy of an iliac lymph node was done, which did not really show any metastatic disease, showed some reactive changes, some questionable like reactive plasma cells or plasma blasts. So it was a non-specific uh, biopsy. And at that point, uh, concern was raised about possible multicentric Castleman's disease, given this patient has um, this HHV8 positive Kaposi sarcoma, and then also had this IgA lambda smoldering myeloma, 
and these lymph nodes you know presenting with some constitutional symptoms and generalized lymphadenopathy um and you know that kind of raised suspicion that whether a patient has castleman's or not so obviously i rebiopsied the patient from another fdg with lymph node um, so with that case in the background, you know, let's jump right into our discussion. So first of all, Aaron, can you give us a like a ten thousand foot view on for our audience on what is Castleman's disease and a bit of a history regarding like how or when you know it was first described? So first, that case is incredibly challenging for numerous reasons, and we we need to come back to that case, and I, and I will point out why that case is challenging. I think it will make more sense to why it's so challenging once we start talking about Castleman. So. The first question, um, that 10,000 uh, foot overview. So first, Castleman's disease, the history, um, I think it was 1954, maybe 56, don't quote me, but uh, Dr. Benjamin Castle uh, um, basically uh, described an entity with a mediastinal mass uh, that was resected and it showed uh, these hyaline vascular kind of infiltrates in this lymph node that was enlarged and it wasn't cancer. Uh, he didn't really know what it was, and he called it Castleman's disease after himself. And we've later since realized that what he was describing was uh, almost certainly unicentric Castleman disease. So whenever I think of Castleman disease, it's it's a disease that it's an unfortunate disease because it's actually many different diseases. OK, so that's one. So it's many different diseases. It's very rare um, and um, it's confusing and it presents across multiple different clinical specialties. So no one really owns it. So that's the recipe for disaster, right? You got a rare disease that's actually many diseases, really should be called many different things, and it presents across all these different specialties where no one owns it. So it's the recipe for delayed diagnosis, no one knows what the hell to do, uh, and poor patient outcomes, uh, which has now been demonstrated in the literature. So first I like to really describe Castleman's diseases. Don't think of it as one disease. Think of Castleman's, when you hear the word Castleman's, that that's really, um, uh, it's a symptom of some other disease. And really what Castleman's means is a pathologist looks at the lymph node. And when they look at the lymph node that was resected for whatever reason it was resected, maybe an enlarged uh, lymph node in an asymptomatic individual or someone with B symptoms and they're working up lymphoma, they see findings, uh, which we'll talk about, I believe in, a, in a other questions if, if you ask about it, uh, findings in the lymph node that are consistent with Castleman disease, which there are various findings, including uh, hyaline vascularization, regression of germinal centers, or frank plasmacytic infiltrate. If a, if a pathologist sees that, he will say, they should say, he or she should say, the findings are consistent with Castleman's. It is up to the clinician now to funnel the, these findings into the correct clinical syndrome, okay? So pathologists should say, hey, there's some findings that look like Castleman's. You, the doctor, the clinician, with the patient in front of you now needs to funnel them into the correct diagnosis. Okay, so I think that's the overview that we'll start out with. Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful because, you know, it's such a rare disease. So sometimes, you know, like many oncologists, they, you know, they may have seen one or two cases in their entire career. It's hard to know when to even think about it in the, in the differential. So one question that patients ask, you know, sometimes is whether Castleman's disease is considered as cancer. Like, do you say it's a, it's a rare hematologic malignancy? Yeah, so just... maybe, yeah. Maybe now we should talk about the, the classification because I think that without knowing that, it makes really the rest of the talk somewhat confusing. Is So we've now said that a pathologist comes back to you as the hematologist, rheumatologist, or even internist, that there's findings consistent with Castleman disease, uh, and that's what they, they tell you. So the first thing you need to ask is, um, one, is there many lymph nodes that are enlarged, or is there just one spot? Okay. 
And if there's just one lymph node that was resected, and usually it's found in an asymptomatic individual, commonly in the mediastinum in a 30 to 35 year old, or a cervical node, node or even a rectal peritoneal node, um, and um, it's Castleman's and they have no B symptoms, no evidence of inflammatory disease, you as the clinician can say, I'm pretty sure this is unicentric Castleman disease, okay? That's unicentric. Now, if there's multiple lymph nodes uh, on imaging that are enlarged, um, then by definition, it is not unicentric, it is multicentric. And you then need to ask, does it fit into one of the multicentric Castleman syndromes? Which there are now, it, it's an ever expanding list. Uh, one is HHV8 associated multicentric Castleman's disease, which is Castleman's associated with the uh, Kaposi sarcoma virus HHV8, uh, which is commonly seen in patients with HIV, but it doesn't need to be in an HIV individual like your particular case. And um, that is its own disease, which we treat differently, which we'll talk about. The next type of multicentric Castleman's disease is POMS associated multicentric Castleman's disease, um, which is associated with the POMS syndrome, which is due to an underlying plasma cell uh, neoplasma or dyscrasia. And that's a polyneuropathy, organ megaly, endocrinopathy, and protein skin changes. They have an elevated VEGF and a neuropathy that's real bad. Uh, that's POMS, and that should be thought of as a neoplastic plasma cell condition. And we treat it much more akin to myeloma and myeloma-like diseases, like the monoclonal gammopathies of clinical significance, than the Castleman's that we're mostly going to talk about in this. So that's its own disease. And the reason why uh, we call it a type of Castleman's, people with POEM syndrome can have enlarged lymph nodes that when you take it out, they have Castleman-like findings. And really, that's all it is. It's just a symptom of their POEMS disease. And I wish it actually even wasn't called Castleman's in that. I think it adds to a lot of confusion. And really, we should just call POEMS with some lymph nodes that have some Castleman-like findings. And you don't really have to do anything for those lymph nodes. You treat the, uh, the POEMS syndrome. And again, we'll get to that more. And then finally, the most interesting, which is the David Hagenbaum version of the disease, uh, who basically uh, helped name this disease, is called idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease. And only you can arrive at that diagnosis, like any other idiopathic diagnosis, is you first have to have Castleman's like finding in the lymph node, multiple lymph nodes, because it's multicentric. They cannot have HHVA positivity. If they do, they are not idiopathic. They are HHVA positive associated disease. They cannot have POEM syndrome or they're in that box. So they cannot have a monoclonal protein or a monoclonal process that's related to that. Um, and you have to exclude all sorts of other stuff that can uh, mimic it. Um, so uh, inflammatory disorders or even some lymphomas can have some Castleman's like changing. So you can't have any of that stuff. Uh, hemophag, you know, HLH, bad lupus, autoimmune lymphoproliferative disorder, uh, all those things need to be excluded uh, with the appropriate evaluation. And if you've excluded all those things, then you can say this is idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease and you treat accordingly, which we'll talk about. But IMCD or idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease actually comes in two flavors. There is idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease, NOS, and there's this other version of the disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease, TAFRO. I know we are killing everyone with these, these uh, mnemonics. <laughs> uh, but the, and it's confusing. You see now why it's so confusing. We're just going over the classification. And the TAFRO version, uh, we will talk about more, is a subtype in, uh, where you see thrombocytopenia, anasarco, reticulin fibrosis in the bone marrow and organ amegaly. So it has unique peculiar features, uh, but is largely treated similarly to the other types of IMCD. So that is the framework you need to go in when we talk about Castleman's disease. So I think for the rest of the talk, when you guys ask me about Castleman's disease, 
we need to go now, which one are we talking about? And, and, and because each, which one we talk about, they're all different diseases and we treat them all differently and we think about them differently, okay? Oh, so it, let's get back to the question. Is Castleman's a cancer? <laughs> Unicentric Castleman's disease, I wouldn't call it cancer, but the more we learn about it, I think it is neoplastic. Um, and they've done some good studies, even actually some of the research I, I've done uh, uh, and published. Um, there is a related cancer called follicular dendritic cell sarcoma, which is a cancer of the follicular dendritic mesh of work in the lymph nodes. And we know that a lot of people with Castleman's can go on to develop overt follicular dendritic cell sarcoma. And from some pretty good studies, if you look hard enough, in most cases of unicentric Castleman's disease, you can find probably a small clonal population of these follicular dendritic cells. And we think that these neoplastic follicular dendritic cells in the lymph node, whose normal function is to support the lymph node, are neoplastic, not to the fact that they're a cancer, but they're as a clonal population that probably secretes some sort of cytokines and signaling molecules that stimulate this Castleman's-like reaction. And proof of this is in clonality studies, uh, they have found neoplastic follicular dendritic cells. And then there was a recent study where they found PDGFR beta receptor mutations, I think in like seven of 40 or 41 cases. And then our own group, we have found cytogenetic abnormalities in follicular dendritic cells and point mutations. So I do think unicentric Castleman's disease is neoplastic, but not an overt cancer, but with the potential to develop follicular dendritic cell sarcoma. Um, now, as far as um, Holmes MCD, that is neoplastic. That's due to an underlying plasma cell clone. And uh, I would think of that as maybe not an overt cancer, but a, a neoplastic process kind of like all the other monoclonal gammopathies of clinical significance, which you guys should definitely do on this show. Those are, those are cool. You should invite someone to talk about that. Um, what about um, HHV8? I, I don't think of that one as neoplastic, although they are at risk of developing other cancers. I think of that as a virus that infects these plasma blasts in the lymph node. It makes the plasma blasts act funny and secrete all these cytokines that causes the Castleman's-like syndrome. And then IMCD, I was about to swear, we don't, we don't know IMCD. And I think the more we study IMCD, so idiopathic MCD, that it's probably gonna fall into one of a few buckets. I bet some cases are truly neoplastic where there's some clone of cells that are causing this process and we just haven't figured it out. And I bet some IMCD cases are auto-inflammatory or autoimmune in nature. We just can't put a name on, a, on an autoimmune or auto-inflammatory syndrome. And I think the final bucket is um, possibly even infectious driven, just like HHV8, multicenter Castleman's disease. Maybe there's some other viruses we just haven't found yet uh, or never heard of that are driving that. And I think that box, all those together create IMCD. But as we get better with any idiopathic disease, we'll further funnel out those cases and put them into even more boxes and hopefully even have better treatments. So I hope that answers your question, is Castleman's neoplastic? Yeah, yeah. So it basically depends on what type of Castleman's you're talking about yes. because there's so much heterogeneity even between the different kinds of Castleman disease. Uh, I was uh, going to ask you, um, Aaron, the question is, like, I know we talked about all the good excellent framework of uh, Castleman's disease, but are there any known risk factors for development of diseases apart from HHV8 and HIV, which we already mentioned about? 
Yeah. So, so HIV is clearly a risk factor for HHV8, and, and, and that's who you see it in. For unicentric, there isn't any risk factors. It does tend to occur in younger individuals, 30 to 35-year-olds. There's a female preponderance. Um, you know, but not not really anything else. Um, and again, there's that association with follicular dendritic cell sarcoma. Um, but no, not really. Um, and um, I actually think of risk factors, patients who are maybe kind of anxious and get lots of scans and stuff, because uh, it's commonly found as an incidental finding uh, uh, in this group of patients. And I bet there may be even more patients walking around with this and don't even know they have it, which is probably a good thing, because for some patients, you don't have to do anything. Um, as far as um, um, IMCD, idiopathic, uh, there are no known risk factors or germline mutations that I am aware of uh, uh, at this point. Sounds good. So, you know, as you had briefly mentioned the pathological features of, of Castleman's and, um, you know, without going into the details of, you know, the hematopathology, like what are some of the key features of Castleman's disease under the microscope, especially, you know, multi, multi-centric Castleman disease? Yeah. And I think, I think one of the big mistakes when this disease is taught to clinicians is they teach you the pathologic classification, which is either hyaline vascular or the plasma cell variant or plasma acidic variant, which really has no not a huge implication in which box you funnel them in, because you can see either or in either unicentric or in multicentric disease. So I actually don't like thinking it in the patholo- pathologic terms, but because you asked the question, so there is this hyaline vascular variant, which you see these um, hyaline kind of rings throughout the lymph node. You'll see regression of the germinal centers, their atrophy or atrophic. You'll see proliferation of the endothelial venules, and you'll see this like onion skin appearance due to this hyaline vascularization. It can even look like a lollipop, the lollipop sign. And then the plasmacytic variant is just, it's infiltrated with plasma cells, not clonal, but a, a polyclonal plasmacytic infiltrate. And you can then see a mixed variant um, where you could see features of both, okay? Classically, although we see, the more we do this, we see overlap, and I've definitely seen it, Unicentric is more commonly highly vascular subtype, while multicentric is more the plasmacytic. But I just told you, you can see both. And it actually doesn't affect treatment, which we'll, we'll talk about uh, when we get to treatment. Um, so once you have secured the diagnosis of Castleman's disease, you know, what is the kind of workup do you order, especially in patients with a multicentric Castleman's disease? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, for completion's sake, let's, let's just talk about, let's just get unicentric down. So by definition, if you see a unicentric, you have to prove it's unicentric. So I, I do typically get a pet, although I don't in all the cases, because like if it's a young person and they have no symptoms uh, um, um, and it's one spot, I sometimes don't even scan them. I, I'm pre- it's not multicentric, they're asymptomatic, you know, and uh, it's been resected and I don't want to fry or radiate a, a young person. Although if you look at the NCC again, guidelines and even got, uh, they they do recommend pet imaging. I I, I don't think I just told you, I don't do it in all of them, but you're supposed to get it if you want to follow the guidelines. They also recommend uh, in the NCCN uh, getting full sets of labs and inflammatory markers and all these things. I don't get any of those because um, they're not inflamed. Uh, and if they're inflamed, then you're working them up for multicentric Castleman's disease. So I actually, NCCN, if you're listening, I strongly agree with just about all your guidelines for unicentric Castleman's disease. They also say follow with a PET scan every year and repeat labs. I completely don't do that. It gets resected. I see them once a year in my clinic. And that's it. So I don't follow the NCCN guidelines actually at all for unicentric now that I think about it. Multicentric, whether it's uh, HHV8 associated or IMCD, I do get a PET scan, okay? 
Um, 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 so I get a PET scan and I get baseline labs. So I have to get all the labs to rule out all the other crap uh, stuff, excuse me, to make sure it's none of these associated conditions. So I'll usually get an autoimmune panel. I usually do refer to a rheumatologist. A lot of times they're not helpful, but my referral question is, does this fulfill any rheumatologic syndrome? That is my question to them. If you cannot funnel them into any of your syndromes, which are kind of arbitrary sometimes, then send them back to me, okay? And, and I, I usually have the panel worked up and usually they send it directly back to me. Uh, um, so that's part of my workup. Um, uh, you know, hepatitis B, HIV, serology is clearly. Um, I usually, you don't need to get an HHV8 PCR. They usually stain the lymph node for that. And if it's positive, then I do check that PCR. You can follow that uh, uh, for a disease uh, response if you treat HHV8 associated. Uh, um, and then um, I usually do, even if there's some inflammatory syndrome, get a good myeloma workup. Uh, you should not detect uh, a clone, uh, especially an IgA lambda, which you see in POEM syndrome. Now, if you do detect a clone, and this is where it can be tricky, and we can get back to your case at some point, you know, just because you find an MGUS, as we all know, you can see MGUSs in patients, especially as they get older in quite a few. So it's up to you to really then decide is this a relation or not? Uh, um, and that can actually get tricky sometimes. But if it's poems, they tend to be less of these, you know, anasarca, night sweats, you know, things like that, more of the poem syndromes. And they better have a neuropathy or it's not poem syndrome. Uh, so that's part of the workup. You do not need a bone marrow biopsy uh, um, for most patients. You should only get a bone marrow biopsy if you're worried about another hematologic malignancy that you might be missing. Or we always get a bone marrow for tafro because... Tafro is that one where they present with cytopenias, thrombocytopenia, and we get a bone marrow because we're not expecting Tafro. We're expecting like a myelodysplastic syndrome or a myelofibrosis. So you get a bone marrow. It's only after you get the bone marrow where they say, hey, there's no clonal myeloid disorder. Then you start thinking of Tafro. But I guess, though, that is then part of the workup. And uh, I, I think that covers most of it. You usually don't need an echo because you're not really going to be treating with anthracyclines outside of some special scenarios with HHB8. Uh, so really the PET scan labs, inflammatory labs, I, I usually don't check an IL-6, although that's commonly checked because of the disease pathogenesis. Um, that's usually a send out, it takes a while to come back. The ESR is just as good as the IL-6 and you can use it to follow uh, uh, those patients. So I, I don't check an IL-6 and actually just a little, little jewel. Um, so the IL-6 can be normal, even in IMCD, it is usually elevated. But once you start treating them with siltuximab, I had a patient sent to me once, so siltuximab, which we'll talk about, blocks IL-6, and the IL-6 didn't go down. It stayed very elevated, and they sent them to me for siltuximab failure, and I go, hey, how are you doing? They're like, I feel great. I felt like crap, and I got it on the siltuximab, and uh, all my inflammatory symptoms are, are, are gone. My lymph nodes have shrunk, but, but uh, they're sending me for failure because the IL-6 was through the roof. The siltuximab, and this has been published, actually interferes with the IL-6 assay. Don't ask me exactly how, but it does, so you should not follow IL-6 levels, you follow the ESR. And usually in siltuximab responsive patients, the ESR normalizes sometimes within one or two doses. So uh, I please, I urge you not to follow IL-6s. I don't even check them. Well, that was very helpful. So uh, yeah, we'll go now into a little bit more into the individual subtypes. And I wanted to wrap up the unicentric Castleman disease first, which you, know, you have you know, mostly already alluded to. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask is, you said that we usually do surgical resection in unicentric Castleman disease. Can some patients be observed without any intervention if it's a small lymph node, you know, not causing any, any problem or any symptom? Yes. So if it's a small lymph node, 
Well, usually it's been completely excised in an excisional biopsy to get to you for the diagnosis. And that's usually required for the diagnosis because you could miss a lymphoma. So usually the diagnosis is curative. Now, where you can run into trouble is um, sometimes patients have fairly large mediastinal or retroperitoneal masses that could be quite extensively on 10 centimeters. I've seen even larger and they get a partial biopsy that's consistent. And then the question is what to do. Um, so um, I, I have a great case that I, I had. Um, I had a, a patient who um, son, unfortunately, had biliary atresia, congenital biliary atresia and needed a liver transplant. Okay. And the father was going to donate his um, liver. And so to work you up for liver transplant, I guess you need a, a CAT scan. So the uh, father got a scan and they found like a 20 centimeter retroperitoneal mass. Wow. I feel good. You know, it was incidental. And um, they send him to our sarcoma team. That's what they thought it was going to be. And he undergoes some like heroic, huge, massive resection that was quite morbid. Um, and it ended up being unicentric Castleman's disease. Um, and then it was sent to me. So yeah, they did it. And he was cured. He had some complications after the surgery. Uh, but the point is, this guy clearly had that for a long time. And, you know, um, um, it's, it's indolent. And um, definitely patients where it's in the mediastinum um, or, or hard to get place, um, I think it's reasonable to observe. There theoretically is this risk of transformation to follicular dendritic cell sarcoma. And it's an undefined risk. We don't exactly know because most of these patients we don't watch. So that's a theoretical risk. And that's a risk benefit discussion with your patient. And, uh, but I generally say if it's easy to remove, do it. Um, if it's more morbid to remove, I don't think it's unreasonable to watch. I usually then will get a scan, usually six months later to assess the tempo of growth. And if it's a lot of times they don't even grow. I think what happens is sometimes they grow and just stop growing for whatever reason. Uh, uh, and then I'll just follow them clinically like any other indolent lymphoma. Okay. Um, and then just to finish out unicentric, some cases you can't resect and you can uh, occasionally do like an embolization with radiology. Again, it's in an area that's not bothering them, they're asymptomatic, you can observe also. Sounds good. And most of the cases of unicentric you see on like incidental scans, or do you see some patients coming in with constitutional symptoms also, like fever, night sweats, things like that? So I probably in my clinic have more unicentric than any of the others, and uh, they come for all various reasons. Very rarely is it because someone's like, I feel a lymph node comes in. Most cases are incidental. Uh, for other complaints evaluated with imaging, okay? Whether it's, a, I had someone who can't, had headaches and they did an MRI and then they saw an MRI of parotid mass that ended up being unicentric. So like, you know, all sorts of various complaints. And then I have said some people come with systemic complaints that just aren't true inflammatory systemic complaints. And it ends up being, and then an they get scans for a workup of lymphoma and it ends up being unicentric. So, so just about everything. Very rarely is it chief complaint related to the unicentric. Now, uh, let's switch gears and move to more multicentric Castleman's disease. Um, are there any key differences in the clinical presentation of different types of MCDs? Yeah, I will say, uh, full disclosure to the audience, so um, the HIV Castleman's, uh, uh, or HHV8, excuse me, is handled by our expert HIV lymphoma doctor, uh, and I usually get the other ones, but I can, I can explain that. That, um, in my experience, typically does present, I haven't seen a patient who has not had HIV. Uh, so they all have had HIV in my experience, although it's not an absolute. Um, so they typically present with fairly advanced HIV uh, uh, and some of the other symptoms associated with that. And it's usually with predominant B symptoms. Fevers is very common. 
uh, um, uh, they can have swelling, they can either have an overt organ failure. Um, they, they're usually anemic, but do have a thrombocytosis. Uh, um, and uh, uh, um, that's typically, and then commonly in HIV, they can co-present with Kaposi sarcoma, which is the other malignancy driven by HHVA. Um, so that's the HIIV. And uh, well, we, you know, do you mind, we, as long as we're talking about HIV, let's just finish out how we deal with HIV uh, or HHVA associated. Sure, cancer. yeah, we can talk about sure. that. Sure. It presents like that. And those patients do need a PET scan. Um, and they definitely need a good excisional biopsy because you really need to make sure um, you're not missing plasmablastic lymphoma, uh, which is a, a malignancy that presents in uh, uh, an HIV-defining or AIDS-defining malignancy that typically presents with a, uh, uh, a jaw mass or a mouth oral pharyngeal mass. And the reason why it can look like calcium is because they can have profound B symptoms and the lymph nodes are usually effaced by plasma blasts, but they're clonal and the pathologist can do other things. They're usually CD20 negative. Uh, so it's a rare CD20 B cell lymphoma and that's an overt lymphoma. They're not though classically associated with HHVA, uh, um, um, usually EBV, um, but um, with HH, with so you need to make sure you're not dealing with that. So you need a good excisional biopsy. They get the PET scan and how do you treat uh, uh, HHVA? It can be challenging. So they, they should all be started on antiretrovirals uh, right away. So we usually get ID on board. And this is the, uh, uh, um, the disease that is fairly reasonable data, phase two data, uh, that rituximab is the answer. Uh, um, and it's usually treated with single agent rituximab. And um, I have done a, a, a few patients where um, if they have concurrent Kaposi sarcoma, it can get complicated because rituximab very good for Castleman disease very bad for Kaposi sarcoma. Uh, it actually will make the Kaposi sarcoma worse. I had a patient with very mild Kaposi sarcoma. No one knew they had it. And they got rituximab for the Castleman's and the Kaposi sarcoma blew up. So what is very good for Kaposi sarcoma is doxel. So a common regimen I'll use where there's some Kaposi sarcoma, or I just got that feeling that that's going to happen, uh, is rituximab plus doxel uh, uh, to treat those patients. So you can do that or single agent rituximab, and you don't need to do a lot of it. And in that particular instance, with immune reconstitution, you can cure that disease. And outcomes are actually quite remarkable. Uh, I haven't looked at that literature in a while, but I think in blood, they published the long-term outcomes of rituximab-treated patients with HHV-associated Castleman's. And if you can get them through that acute bad HIV, get their immune system reconstituted, they're cured and they can have very good long, it shouldn't come back. Uh, that's usually not the case, okay? Um, so that's, that's HHV-associated. Any more questions on that or are we good on that? Are there any data based on RCTs? I know you mentioned that rituximab is based on uh, phase two data. Are there any RCTs? Uh, I, don't any, I, I, don't, I don't think in the HIV literature there's RCTs comparing rituximab to other things. I, I don't, okay. unless you guys looked one up and found one and I don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, I couldn't find any. Yeah, yes, yeah. I, I don't believe there, there is. It's pretty standard to use rituximab. And then again, the addition of chemotherapy like doxels. I make that decision off what I told you with the Kaposi sarcoma. Sure, sure. All right. So now I think let's uh, move on to the idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease where we have most of the data and all the fun stuff. So, uh, you know, as I, I was actually impressed to see that there is a randomized control trial, in, even in such a rare disease you know, with seltuximab, you know, anti-IL-6 antibody. So can you tell us a little bit about the biological rationale behind using seltuximab for this entity? 
Yeah, so IMCD, again, we're talking about the idiopathic variety, and we're, uh, um, which I'm going to divide into that TAFRO variant and the NOS. We're mainly going to be talking about NOS right now, not otherwise specified. So that's an inflammatory syndrome, which we don't know what causes it. And these patients present with lymphadenopathy. It's usually not crazy, though. It's not like full-blown lymphoma lymphadenopathy. They're usually a few centimeters. Be atypical to see 10, actually, I've never seen that, to see huge, bulky lymphadenopathy. It's, but it's there by definition. And, um, you know, uh, and then they have to have the pathological features that we talked about. But in, in these patients, IL-6, for whatever reason, is, is driving the disease. It's key to the pathogenesis. What's causing that IL-6? We don't know. It's, it's one of those things that we talked about earlier in this discussion. Something is driving uncontrolled IL-6 uh, proliferation. You get all the nasty things that are associated with that. Fevers, profound fatigue, market inflammatory anemia, you get a thrombocytosis, uh, eventually vessels get leaky, you get anasarca, you can get organomegaly, you can get renal failure, okay? Uh, you can get, um, so those are the main kind of uh, uh, classical symptoms, but acetaminophen can really present like a gazillion ways. Um, uh, it, particularly in Polynesia or in Asia, you can see this, that, that variant where they get this interstitial pneumonitis. So it can actually almost present, I, I, I had a patient uh, who was worked up forever. So it was more, and getting back to the tempo, it could present is like fulminant death in the ICU uh, where you need to rapidly figure it out. Or it could be more of a smoldering inflammatory syndrome that uh, has ebbs and flows where it can flare and not. So the spectrum is across the roof because as I told you, this is probably many diseases that we can't define. And... Um, you know, um, getting back to this interstitial pneumonitis that's common in the Asian population, I had a lady worked up for ILD and they could never figure it out. She also had this very peculiar rash that they biopsy. There was always these polyclonal plasma cells. It actually was referred to me. I have a kind of what the hell is going on clinic and uh, I'm known to open that uh, where I'm willing to see, to add some spice to my day. Uh, 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 like, you don't know what's going on, send it to me, even if they don't think it's team. And she was sent to that clinic. And um, you know what? I was, I, 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 it would cross my mind. It could be Castleman's and we got a PET scan and she had not crazy lymphadenopathy, but it was definitely lymphadenopathy. We resected it and, and she had IMCD with lymphocytic interstitial pneumonitis and, uh, and the, uh, the rash, which is common, not common, but you could see these papules, uh, that are plasmacytic. Um, and, um, we, we treated her with siltuximab and she, she's doing great. So, uh, all sorts of varying, uh, uh, presentations. So how do we, so as I said, it's driven by this IL-6. So um, how do we treat it? So we have two drugs that target IL-6. And I think more people are now familiar with tocilizumab, which I think was originally approved for rheumatoid arthritis, so, uh, but it's now widely used for cytokine release syndrome in CAR T cells. And tocilizumab is an IL-6 receptor blocker, while siltuximab is an IL-6 receptor. So they kind of work the same, but they're slightly different, okay? And in the United States, siltuximab is FDA approved for idiopathic multicentric calcium disease, while in, I think, Japan and Asia, it's tocilizumab. Uh, but we largely feel both can be used interchangeably. I just use siltuximab because that's what the study was, and uh, uh, that's what's FDA approved. Uh, but for, for whatever reason, the kids, doctors who treat Castleman's use a lot of TOSI. I've noticed that. Uh, 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 that's what they use. Uh, um, but let's talk about siltuximab. So siltuximab is an IL-6 blocker. And I just explained to you that 
for unknown reasons, IL-6 drives this disease process and causes all the sequelae of the disease. So it makes sense to treat it with an IL-6 blocker. And um, the study was, they do, they have a randomized study. Okay. And I love randomized studies. Uh, it was a randomized phase two study. And, you know, I like a randomized phase three, but hey, it's Castleman's disease. There weren't many <laughs> Castleman's patients. Okay. So I'm not going to. Yeah, I won't, I won't go all Prasad on it, okay? I love you, Vinay. Um, a key thing to understand, though, at the time this study was written and developed, we actually did not have the consensus criteria for idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease. So actually, the inclusion criteria for the study was HIV-negative Castleman's disease. But we've changed. Dave Fagenbaum met with a bunch of pathologists and world experts, and they really defined the disease off criteria. And it's possible that in a more well-defined criteria, outcomes may be better, worse, or different, okay? Um, so keep that in mind, uh, uh, um, that, that the population defined was actually, it was more loose, meaning there were actually, if you go back and look, patients enrolled on that study who wouldn't have met the criteria for IMCD, okay? It is what it is, okay? So with that understood, they, they enrolled patients, and I, I want to say it was not more than 100. Uh, I don't remember the exact number. Uh, uh, and they randomized to sultuximab versus best supportive care. So as we always talk about, a control arm should be what you do in your clinic or don't enroll the patient. Um, I was not around practicing then, probably never even heard of Castleman's when the disease was, when the, when the space was designed. I know prior to that, um, rituximab was being used off-label uh, at that time. It's not approved. Um, although there is really no prospective study with rituximab in IMCD, so we don't really have great data. We have case series and things like that, but I believe that is what most were using, and most were also using chemotherapies and things like that. Again, though, wasn't even really a well-defined disease, and you know, uh, um, so yeah, I mean, ideally they would have allowed rituximab, or I, I think the ideal design would have been do whatever the hell you can come up with, because we have actually that is how they should have done it. Like investigative discretion, physician's yeah, choice. You don't know how to treat this disease. Use whatever the hell you can. Uh, um, and um, because they already had phase one data, this sultuximab was active. Uh, um, so they, they, you know, they did allow steroids in this best supportive uh, care group, but single agent steroids don't work too well. Um, and then they did allow uh, appropriately those who progressed to cross over. Uh, um, so, you know, but yeah, I, I think that was uh, a flaw. Um, so uh, uh, in the study. Um, but this is what we got. And what they showed was, um, I think it was a response rate of 30 to 40%. But, but response in Castleman's is, is, is unique. And, um, you know, responses, they had strict response criteria, you know, uh, to be a CR, you know, they were using lymphoma criteria, like you have, have to have full shrinkage of the node. But I do a lot of Castleman's and like, I don't even care what happens to the lymph nodes. I, I, the, the size of, they usually go down a little bit, but they hardly ever completely go to zero because, right, I don't think of siltuximab as a disease maybe modifying. Like it's not, whatever's causing this, it's not targeting that. It's just mopping up that evil cytokine that's uh, uh, IL-6. The inflammation, and, maybe just yeah, suppressing it, the inflammation. It's, it's treating the, the symptom. And um, most patients in my experience, and now if you look at the long-term data, do respond to it, okay? There are some that truly don't. Most patients do observe a clinical benefit from the drug. And if you look at the long-term data now, um, if you do respond to it, have clinical benefit, it seems to be very durable. I am, I'm telling you, in my clinic, 
I have not had a patient who has responded to sultuximab, stop responding. That has not happened yet in my clinic. Um, if they respond, they seem to respond indefinitely. And that's what the literature shows, although there are some people who lose responses, okay? So I, I would say in my hands, and if you look across using any sort of response, meaning their anemia gets better, they feel better, it's more like 60 to 80%. I think the majority of patients do respond to this drug. And um, I'm not, you know, compared to chemo, it's, it is better tolerated. Um, probably a similar level of toleration to rituximab. I actually think it's easier. And I think a lot of people are scared by siltuximab just because they don't give it. Uh, but siltuximab doesn't have the infusion. It's much rarer infusion reactions than rituximab, although it is reported. Um, and it's way less immunosuppressive. You're not depleting uh, uh, the B cells like you are uh, with rituximab. And there was no hint yet that we're aware of a more severe COVID uh, with siltuximab. Actually, they studied, you know, they were studying these drugs to treat severe COVID, uh, the cytokine release storm. So I'm not saying it's helpful for COVID, but it doesn't seem to increase the risk of COVID like rituximab clearly does in our, our hemolivency patients. So you hardly see any bad side effects. Their counts usually get better. Um, and in those that it works, their, their cytopenia is normalized and their thrombocytosis goes down. Their ESR normalizes, their elevation in immunoglobulins goes down. But most of the time, their lymph nodes don't completely normalize. And what I do is I build into the treatment set. So siltuximab so is given every three weeks. It's given 11 milligrams per kilogram. And in my treatment orders, I follow ESR, ferritin, immunoglobulins, and a CBC and CMP. Once those normalize, I stop following those. And I just follow, you know, CMB, CBC, and CMP. I will get one scan three months later. As long as I see the node shrinking, and to be honest, you probably don't even need to do it, but I do it, and, and it gets better, I stop scanning. I'm in the minority, I swear, I, I, but that is how I do it. I don't get any more scans after that, uh, even though all guidelines recommend more. They're responding, and if something clinically changes with the patient, they feel worse, whatever, yeah, then I'll scan. But once I got that response, uh, uh, then I'm good. The only other things to really um, watch out with siltuximab um, there's a slight infection risk, but it's not a big signal. Um, patients tend to gain weight uh, on the drug. Um, I think a lot of it's just that they were all malnourished and feel much better. Um, you can see hyper, you know, elevated uh, cholesterol with siltuximab. So I typically check a, a panel maybe six months later. Uh, I don't do any other than that, then I just do whatever the PCP will do. And that's, I think that's kind of about it with siltuximab. Do you um, continue it long-term or is there a fixed duration? Great question, yeah. So, We've started looking at that and we're accumulating data. None of this is prospectively studied. But again, you know, in a disease like siltuximab, you're not going to have much pro. So what I, when I see a patient with Castleman's disease, IMCD, I go, don't think of this as cancer. Think of it just like a chronic illness, more akin to rheumatoid arthritis. Most patients with rheumatoid arthritis are on constant therapy uh, um, to, to keep things going. So we used to do three weeks uh, as it's written. The study wasn't definite. But investigators started spacing out to every six weeks and those that responded. Um, and um, if you look at, it's a very small numbers, but I think in the patients that were spaced out to six weeks, all continued to hold their response. I know of one case that I was part of the care team where we just stopped because the patient was like, screw this, I'm done. It came back and we put them on the siltuximab and it went away. Uh, so that was reassuring that you could you know, regain that response and not lose it, which makes sense because it's not like a cancer where you're going to breed mutations, at least we think. 
Yeah. And I have in my clinic, I've done all sorts of experimenting with appropriate patient consent, uh, where um, most after quite some time we are spacing it out and I'm seeing how long, I'm a huge fan of spacing out. So in many of my patients, I space out to six weeks uh, um, and this is off label, but uh, we try to space out. So, and eventually I think we're all gonna pull together all the other doctors who treat Castleman's and you know, publish our series of spacing out because uh, uh, that's, you know, patients don't wanna come in every three weeks, but clearly it's one of those where like, they want to miss a dose, not the end of the world. Okay. You know, it's not life, life, you know, life changing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and among you said it's very rare that patients, you know, stop responding to siltuximab or do not regain response. But if they don't respond to the, uh, if they, you know, relapse or stop responding to siltuximab as second line treatment, then you would use rituximab or, or do you use something yeah, else? So I think I have not seen loss of response. Typically what you'll see is the refractory cases. So let's change the subject. What is so when you, I didn't bring this up, but um, when you see a new Castleman's, you're supposed to, you know, say, is this severe Castleman's or not? And uh, I don't have the exact severe criteria memorized, but it's it's quite obvious. Uh, poor performance status, a hemoglobin less than eight, any lung uh, uh, symptoms, um, anasarca. I mean, so there's these criteria or organ disability. So that's severe. And those severe patients are typically hospitalized. Okay. And we know that uh, the severe patients, they do worse like any other disease. And uh, we still, in our consensus guidelines that I'm part of, do recommend siltuximab, but with a very, very cautious low threshold to fire up the chemo, okay, or, or alternative agents. And um, the reason being is they can go south pretty fast, okay? And um, you don't have time to wait for that siltuximab to settle things down. Either they're not going to respond or you don't have the three to six weeks to wait. And in those cases, um, I typically do recommend, this is all based off user experience. This is no, no prospective data. Um, rituximab, not alone though, uh, uh, in, in those cases, I will usually combine it with chemo. I've used CVP before, um, try to avoid, usually you can't give an anthracycline because of organ failure. Um, you could do, um, for severe cases, just treat it like a bad myeloma with VDT pace or some sort of uh, 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 variant of that with alkylating agent and uh, uh, proteasome inhibitors I've seen used uh, or, or IMIDs are used, you know, and combined with chemo. So you can do that. And that's all based off. There is actually a phase two looking at that approach in blood. Uh, um, uh, so that's how, how you do it. So for those severe cases or, uh, you know, you treat with chemo. Now, for those cases that are rituximab non-responsive, then really your choice is rituximab or chemo or a combination. And um, I will say, I think the benefit maybe of rituximab is we have case series that you can treat with rituximab four doses just weekly and be done. Um, it's not prospective data, but there's definitely patients where that, that can happen. So I bring that up actually with patients, even those who are stable, uh, uh, that maybe we can do rituximab, but we still do have the best data for siltuximab, and that's generally what I use. Uh, um, so, so that's kind of how I use. So for those those, uh, and then the TAFRO patients. So those are the patients that present with thrombocytopenia, anasarca, reticulin fibrosis, and organomegaly. They, their response to siltuximab is um, definitely less, uh, uh, if you look at the studies, uh, significantly less. Although some do respond, um, and those patients usually need, typically how I've handled those is a chemo for one or two cycles, get them well, get them out of the hospital. And then I transition them to siltuximab and I follow them closely. Some of those patients, 
have had then long-term remissions. Whether they needed the siltuximab or not, I can't tell you. Maybe it was just the chemo that put them in, but we don't know. Uh, and that's how I've handled those approaches because you can't keep on giving chemo indefinitely to those patients. Uh, so that's another strategy that us who do Castleman's have kind of done. Completely made up, you know, off our, <laughs> off our expert uh, judgment in treating this disease. So talking about poems-associated MCD, you know, what is the first-line therapy uh, of uh, poems-associated uh, MCD? Yeah, you know, Raj could probably tell me better than I, I can tell. So I, I, I actually, though, I, I have some poems patients, but um, um, they're the minority of my Castleman. So remember, poems is a plasma cell neoplasm, and don't even think of it as Castleman's. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, they have some Castleman's in their notes, but it's just a a bystander to, 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 to their problem. And um, typically uh, uh, what we've done is, you know, myeloma directed therapy, but you don't, Raj can correct me if I'm wrong. You don't need like DARA RVD. You know, this is a, this is a small, usually clone. It's not cancer. It's this small clone that has this perineoplastic phenomenon. So you can do, and so we typically, uh, I usually, they have bad neuropathy. So I don't really feel really happy to give them Velcade. Uh, um, so how I've done my few patients is Revlimid and dexamethasone. And um, I have transplanted these patients because with transplant, um, you could have a very durable uh, response after transplant without even maintenance. And, you know, I've had maybe they're functionally cured after the transplant. You know, I don't know. Is there data yet with DARA? I mean, DARA seems attractive, actually, in this. Is there now data using DARA in POEM syndrome? I think there is a clinical trial currently ongoing. I think Arkansas, uh, at Arkansas, Dr. Fritz Van Rie, I think is the PI on POEM syndrome with daratumumab. I haven't seen any any results from that trial yet, but uh, I think it's currently accruing. Um, yeah. But some of the POEMS patients here, yeah, I mean, single-edge and DARA, very well tolerated. I've, I've used in one patient to quickly get them into a CR and uh, just a fixed duration, not indefinite. Um, but yeah, are I mean, you treating a newly diagnosed poems with Revlimid and Dex or? Yeah. Yeah. With Revlimid and Dex. And then, you know, I had one patient who did not like the M protein was not going down like much. So I added like, I did not add, but stopped Revlimid Dex, just gave single agent data for a two to three cycles and went into CR and then just stopped it and also symptomatic improvement. Uh, but uh, I mean, data seems attractive because it's, you know, very well tolerated in these patients, no neuropathy risk and things like that. Yeah, I wonder if just like the field of amyloid now that we've moved yeah. kind of away from transplant, you know, I think if you could get with Rev or Darrow a very good response, clear that protein, you know, I, I think now the next patient I had, I probably would not transplant. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's it's a small clone. So, yeah. you know, maybe we don't need uh, like a MEL200. So, you know, finally, to wrap up a philosophical question I wanted to ask, I was listening to uh, uh, the episode recently in, in Vinay's podcast where you and uh, Dr. Loghavi and, and Dr. Steensma were there. It was, it was a great episode. And you were talking about, you know, treating rare diseases and how you know, like uh, physicians, like there, there are so few hematologists, oncologists who have expertise or see a lot of patients with these kinds of rare disease. So I, you know, want to know your opinion, opinion on like how important do you think it is to see a physician with content expertise in uh, rare diseases, you know, when you are a patient with a rare disease like Castleman or even like amyloidosis, for example, when I see a new patient with amyloidosis, sometimes they have seen like three or four other specialities, including sometimes a local hematologist. And finally, they come to a expert center and to get a diagnosis. Uh, there is no data, of course, that, you know, seeing uh, somebody with content expertise in this rare disease improves outcome. But how important do you think it is for them to see uh, somebody with interest in the disease or somebody with expertise? 
Yeah, so my feelings on this have changed a little bit. When I started, um, I've even been critical. I was like, you know, the experts sees one disease, like they get narrow-sighted and uh, blinded sometimes. And um, I was, I am critical of that. Um, but now here I am six years later and I have more expertise, especially in Castleman's. And, um, you know, because I've seen a lot of it, oh, you know, and I've seen a lot of it and most people see one, I don't know, I can't imagine they're seeing a lot of it. And um, I do, I, <laughs> I mean, it's not, I'm a hypocrite. I mean, I do think I could do it better than most. And it's not that I'm smarter. Uh, it's that, you know, there is some skill to doing a lot of it. And you see all these, you know, like you might not know the IL-6 goes up when you give so tough. I mean, like, and I don't blame you for not knowing that. And there's these little things that you only get from doing a lot of it. And uh, um, so I, I do, I'm going to be the biggest hypocrite. I think for super rare diseases, it's probably best because, you know, yes, in a perfect world, we could all do it, but it's just not possible. There's not enough. So, um, but the, the, the caveat is like, you know, you got to get to the rare disease guys. So it's still up to the community doctor to recognize it or at least think about it. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard. So I'm giving you mixed, mixed signals, you know, but I do think with, yeah, you know, like with myeloma, you know, I, I love my myeloma experts, but like, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, you do lose with expertise you do lose, you become, you sometimes lose the, the, what's the force, but you, you know, you lose the big picture thing and you get hung up on things that from an outsider might have some valuable input. So I actually full circle with this. We need both and both need to work together uh, uh, because, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's valuable input that everyone could be gotten from both. And we need to be nice to each other, but respect uh, uh, both groups. And, you know, maybe in the past I wasn't, you know, I, we need to be nice and respectful, but be honest with each other. And I think we can both learn. So, but for rare diseases, I do, I do. I mean, you know, uh, and for amyloid, I agree. I mean, amyloid, and I do treat a lot of amyloid, but I probably see more amyloid now than myeloma because I do the weird stuff. There is a skill with amyloid and I've just seen so much of it messed up. And I'm sure you have too. And it's a debilitating disease. And it's, you know, I treat a lot of Erdheim Chester that's just messed up and it's not that they're stupid it's just they've never seen her and i'm chester and they're googling it the first time you know and i have 50 <laughs> patients with her and i'm chester so you know uh there is some value to it but they still got to find me and, and i think the big trouble is getting to that right person because i'm not making these diagnoses usually uh they're made by someone else uh, um so that's why i do think education is important i do a lot of tweeting on these things because like i want to just to, the goal is like when you give a talk to medical students on amyloid i don't want them to know about dare rvd don't who cares I want them to think about it the next time they see someone with heart failure. That that's my goal, and and so it crosses their mind, and they go, maybe this is amyloid, and they don't make it to you, Raj, when they have stage four amyloid. It's more of a benign thing at an earlier stage. Yeah, no, that's very well said, and I think one thing that I really like that you said in in Vinay's podcast too that you know there is a value in seeing like the natural history of disease playing in front of your eyes. For example, Erdheim-Chester, like you have seen the natural history of the disease. So, I mean, there is no, you know, way to measure that. It's just a tacit knowledge that, you know, you just like, I think that makes the patients and family like comfortable. That That's what I have felt in, in personal experience. Yes, no, definitely like the natural history of Erdheim-Chester. Like when I had my first few, you see it everywhere. I'm treating, but now I'm like, it looks scary, but kind of behaves like an adult lymphoma in some and apply the rules of hematologic malignancies other than what they do in smoldering. Don't treat asymptomatic individuals, you know? And I've had patients with Erdheim Chester that have crap everywhere that looks horrible, even around their heart. And I've watched them for years. So um, 
you know, and there is that, like, I only would have done that from just personal experience, uh, 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 you know, and, and definitely we have an overtreatment problem on college. And I think that's a hard thing to address. And I think a lot of it is because we just don't know. And there's that uncertainty. Uh, so there is that seeing the natural history and seeing what to expect, knowing what to expect. You can really only get from, from doing and in a three-year fellowship, you know, you're lucky if you see a few amyloids, right? You know, or one or I'm Chester, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. So thank you, Aaron, Aaron, for your time. It was, I think, a great discussion. And we learned a lot. Uh, I'm sure our audience will love it, too. So uh, we, yeah, we, we definitely want to bring you back sometime for talking about other rare hematologic malignancies. Love and maybe to talk smoldering. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you someone who loves treating smoldering. I will yes. No, I am no small. I will. There's no way they win this. discussion. At the end, there's no way they agree with me that they should treat smoldering. Definitely, we'll bring you back to the small room, by the way.